Every once in a while, Rob comes out from behind the tangle of wires and sits down on the other side of the podcast microphone and records an epic episode with Allison. This is one of those episodes. It is awesome, and their dry British humor is the best. What is luxury? Can you have luxuries? Can you live a luxurious life? A luxury is part of our every day. Does luxury have to be a $1,200 clutch bag or some 14 bazillion thread count? Egyptian cotton sheets, or is luxury something that we can see and appreciate in everyday life? In this episode, Rob and Allison tease out some of those fine luxuries that they experience in their life. And I'm curious to know, what are the luxuries in your life? And does this change your perspective on how you see those things in your everyday life? Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Welcome back to Ancestral Kitchen Podcast and welcome to my guest today who is sitting opposite me, Rob. Hello. Hi. Thank you for sharing your time and wisdom with us today. It's fun. You are an Andrea-approved guest, (laughs) Andrea's told me. Andrea's really kind to me. (laughs) Okay, for those of you who don't know, Rob is my husband and um, today we are going to be talking about luxuries, treats and everyday luxuries and sharing a lot of the processes that we go through for some of the foods that feel like real treats to us. Before we get started, I'm going to um, remind listeners of our Patreon page. Thank you very much if you are a patron and you support us. If you're able to, go check out patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast and See the ways that you can support us and all the goodies that we give back if you want to do that. And then, Rob, I'm going to ask you, in true Ancestral Kitchen podcast style, what was the last thing that you ate? Well, this is going to sound really ridiculous because uh, it's it's the one meal of the day that Alison has nothing to do with. What, what so, meal was it? Well, it's breakfast okay. um, was the last thing I ate. We're sort of mid-morning here recording. And... The the problem with breakfast is is that I do it, and so uh, sort of all my little preferences around food get satisfied, but not in a very finessed or. Um, you do your breakfast. Yeah, you yeah, don't exactly. Do mine. I'm just trying to preface what's going to be like a long list of really and old also foods. Most of the but, things that go into your breakfast. Okay, so leftover sorghum. We cook sorghum. We cook it in stock if we're lucky. And then it just kind of sits mm. in the fridge for three or four days afterwards. Mm. And I spoon bits of it out onto a plate. Kind of like having a breakfast cereal, really, except hopefully does me less harm. Um, I love then... Trust me, I've been researching breakfast cereals. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. And, okay, some salads. If there's any anything green, basically, in the fridge that can be eaten raw, gets shoved in the bowl. Just only a handful, a little bit. But um, usually a fairly sizable piece of fruit gets shoved in that bowl also then these days i've been having a reasonable quantity of 
linseed, like, I don't know, a few dessert spoons or something ground up, but also some cheese for protein. Here we have pecorino, which, um, if you can excuse my Italian accent or my non-Italian accent more correctly, it's, it's just sheep's cheese, basically. Um, and ours is usually raw, which is great and comes from reasonably local farms, mm. which is also quite satisfying. And as well as that, oh, there's usually kefir grains in there <laughs> because my son, Gabriel, makes water kefir, slightly under duress, I have to say. But the thing is, if he doesn't make it, he doesn't get to drink it. Um, and, and also his mother doesn't get to drink it, so she docks some of his pocket money. So it's a bit <laughs> of a double whammy for him, really, if he can't be bothered to do it. Um, so, yeah, he makes the water kefir. And, and our water kefir grains multiply uh, they breed like rabbits. They really yeah. do. It's amazing. Um, so I, I generally eat a few of them in my breakfast, and they're quite nice. Um, I know that probably sounds a bit odd, but if you try them, they're, they're just surprisingly nice. They don't look nice, but they are. Olive oil. If I'm lucky, it's the really good local stuff. If I'm unlucky and we just can't afford it, then it's mm. the... Um, uh, there's a little the kind of mini stuff. market that, I mean, they, they, it's unfiltered and it's organic, but it's nothing like the stuff you get grown down the road. Mm. The trouble is it costs half the price. And so uh, like we're sort of around 50, 50 at the moment, mm. really, aren't we? That we, we do, we buy a bit of both. Um, and yeah, ho hopefully that can change in the future because uh, the local stuff is amazing yeah. here. It really is. It's um, Anything else? Do I add anything else to that? I think that's probably about it. And, um, There's usually a coffee there yeah, as well. Yeah, we're going to talk about the coffee which later. I, which I have before I start. We'll talk about that one later. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, I'm sorry that was such a, a long list and probably irrelevant to anybody else. Do you know what? I used to do it when I was really young. I used to just mix about six different breakfast cereals together and pour awful pasteurized milk all over it. And... I seem to, in a strange way, I'm doing the same thing now, just with much better foods. That's what it feels like. <laughs> so this is the point where you ask me what I last ate. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I've just taken up like 10 minutes of the podcast with <laughs> my nonsense. You asked me. You, what am he, I supposed to do? You asked me. He's <laughs> got a glass of rye kvass in his hand and he's prioritising drinking the rye kvass, not asking me. Come on. Yeah, OK. What do you have for breakfast then? Oh, thank you. OK, so my breakfast, as Rob says, is usually very different to his. And I've been experimenting with a type of fermented oat cake, which was made in a place called Rutherglen, which is on the outskirts of Glasgow. Up until about 100, 150 years ago, it was made by women um, for St Luke's Fair, which was on St Luke's Day. And there's really not much of a recipe for it. Um, I've seen it in two or three places, but no one has ever given me quantities or anything more than a really vague outline of what to do so the last four or five months I've been trying to recreate these um respecting the incredible tradition that was around them women used to come together and sit in a circle and one of them was the head woman and they used to all have a board and bash these oat cakes and it was just it's really made me um curious and so I've been playing around with them and I fermented some oats a couple of days ago, maybe three days ago. It's warm here now because it's summer. And then this morning I made it into a dough, put in a little bit of sugar and a little bit of anise, which is aniseed, and then rolled them really, really thin. Um, and then cooked, I tried half of them in the cast iron, half of them cooked in the oven. And they're delicious. They're so crunchy. 
And literally, it's just the oats, the anise, and the little bit of sugar. No fat, no nothing else. Um, and I had them with yogurt, which I don't have very often, because there he doesn't agree with me quite so well as eggs, or perhaps collagen powder does for breakfast. It's hard to get hold of good stuff as well, yeah, isn't it, around yeah. here? They don't, I think there just isn't much in the way of animals that can do that so it's not so much of a yogurt culture either in the, the part of italy we are i think in the mountains up north there is more um so i had a little container um that i found yesterday of plain um cow's milk yogurt which i put half a scoop of collagen into to up the collagen and then i had that with three of the oat cakes just dry and was kind of dipping them in um that was my breakfast so completely different to rob's as you can um, as you can hear. If you're into ancestral eating, you'll know that liver is a superfood full of vitamin A, K and a whole host of B vitamins plus many essential minerals. It has a truly exceptional nutrient profile and is a staple of traditional healthy diets. But it's not always as easy to get liver into our lives as we want. Getting a good supply, knowing how to cook it so it actually tastes good, and getting all of our family to eat it. These things can be hard, especially when we're busy or travelling. That's where Andrea and I turn to liver capsules. They give us the incredible benefits of liver without having to worry about the sourcing, the preparation or the eating. One Earth Health produces organ capsules from 100% grass-fed New Zealand-raised cattle. As a podcast listener, you can get 5% off and free shipping by using the link oneearthhealth.com forward slash ancestral kitchen. And each time you order, you'll also be supporting us to keep on making the podcast. Details and the link are in the show notes. Okay, so today. I have wheeled Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Let me out of my cage. <laughs> it's, it's probably more like a wardrobe, really, isn't it? Yeah. In our house. <laughs> in order to share with you what we do in our house to have treat food. And I wanted to start the discussion talking just about luxury in general, because so much of what we make is repetitive and, frankly, boring. Um, Andrew and I just recorded uh, 50 ways to save money in an ancestral kitchen. And one of those ways, you'll hear that episode soon. One of those ways was just eat the same food. And we do that a lot. You know, like Rob said, we cook that sorghum. We leave it in the fridge. We have it for supper. <laughs> Gabriel hates it. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no, not more sorghum, no. But it is what we do. And, you know, we'll have a, a salad bowl or cook vegetables in bulk. A lot of our food is very repetitive. Um but we, we have these other kind of luxury items. And I wanted to just address kind of why we need luxuries. Um, so I thought about kind of psychological effect of them for our health and, and our sanity. What's your take on what the luxuries that we have in our diet, in our kitchen, um, do for your state of being, whether that be health or mind, Rob? I think, I mean, uh, um, maybe I want to step back a little bit and ask the question, what is a luxury? Because mm. I think, I mean, just every meal, like that, that breakfast I described to you a moment ago, I really enjoy that every morning. I really enjoy it. 
Well, you know what? It wouldn't satisfy me at lunchtime. At lunchtime, I generally want some more condensed carbohydrate because, I don't know, I'm, I'm forced to have breakfast earlier than I would want to because of our kind of routine getting Gabriel to school and that kind of thing. So my, the quantity I have for breakfast is not maybe that high. And also the, it's, it's a sort of, it's a fairly wet, easy set of foods to digest, whereas bread for me is heavier. Around lunchtime, my tummy's ready for that. And it's just, you know, the, the feelings in my body and in my senses see one food as appropriate at one time and one food as appropriate at another time. So things that seem boring in quotes on an everyday basis they can feel quite luxurious like for example the coffee I have in the morning that feels like a luxury like I sit and enjoy it before everybody else gets up and it's wonderful like if I if I had that in the evening it wouldn't feel like a luxury it would do something to my psyche that would be unsettling and frustrating like really beer's a luxury in the evening you know um and yeah if you have sleep problems maybe not such a great idea but it's I, th- I think luxury, it is context to such a huge degree that things feel luxurious because they're just, they're the right taste, the right texture. And I, I mean, we'll probably talk about some of the ferments you've got. Like yeah. the the Boza is thicker. So it kind of, it gives you a bit of calories and sustenance. If you're just thirsty, but you want something a little bit more hydrating than water, then Reichfass or Suens, the, so luxury what was the question originally well, luxury is really you complicated posted, you posed another question yeah, to the question sorry, which was what, what is the luxury and so you're saying that a luxury is the right food at the right time but also yeah. it appears to have an element of consciousness in it so you said with the coffee you sit down and you really relish that coffee yeah yeah and amazing. i came up with some other kind of everyday foods that feel like luxuries for for us so for example you know, if we if we're roasting a pork joint and I've made it so that the fat has gone all like crackling, that feels like a luxury. You know, we're all sitting at the table. This roast pork has been in the oven for an hour and something. It's more expensive than the eight than, euros a kilo yeah. liver we normally eat. Exactly. <laughs> and the crackling is salty yeah. oh, and satisfying yeah. and crunchy, which is when really important for me. Soon. Soon. Um, still warm sourdough. You know, I try and keep my sourdough till it's gone to normal ambient temperature, but sometimes I cut it when it's still warm and then I spread it with some of our home reddened lard and put some salt on it. And it is an absolute luxury. But again, I'm treasuring that moment. I'm, I know that I'm going to enjoy the pleasure and I'm taking time to enjoy that. I think our pizza, we do our pizza with a pizza yeah. stone in the oven it's a big day when there's a pizza and we have, you know, just salad with it. It's, it's simple. It's just spelt sourdough pizza. The recipe is on my site and I will link it. And it has whatever toppings we've got at the time and then a salad. But it's so special. It, we, we make a ceremony out of it. So I think there's a perhaps a, that ceremony comes into the I mean, thing I, of I luxury with food. Part of it is just purely we put such a ludicrous amount of effort into preparing effort, our food yeah. and such <laughs> such a huge amount of kind of time and money into sourcing it right that, that like by the time it hits your plate you're going to feel pretty down if you're not enjoying it basically so it just that amount of effort 
kind of you invest that much in it it's like I don't know investing in some coaching program you know you're, you're just determined to enjoy, enjoy it and it. get the most out no, but of I it do. And, but yeah exactly it's sort of that's what I mean it's 50% that and it's also 50% because we put so much effort into it the food really stops you in its tracks you know and because we take care to eat the right food at the right time even the everyday things often feel like luxuries I think the listeners will resonate with that you know that the closer you get to the food the more involved you get in the food, the more you value it, the more you know the time that you've put in, the more it does feel the simplest thing, like a complete luxury. Um, and I feel like the consciousness is, of, of that is very important. You know, because you don't have to put loads of time in to have a food be a luxury. You know, a completely ripe strawberry that's still warm that you've just picked from the strawberries that you've grown in your own garden, just on its own, biting into that strawberry. I guess there's effort growing the strawberry, isn't there? Okay, so say you didn't grow it. Say you bought it from someone. <laughs> it can still be really good. So the consciousness element, I think... But is... it's better when you're thirsty and it's better when yeah. you haven't just had a teaspoon of honey. And it's it's just like, yeah, it's context, completely. isn't it? And, it? and it's also better when you're not just craving some complex carb to really give you some yeah. long, you know, you're proper hungry. I think it's... also it's... when I When I started this section, I was kind of talking about what do these luxury foods give us? And, you know, when we're in the kitchen all day working really hard, producing all these foods, just like the people who are listening to us who have, you know, big families, they're on their feet from early morning to late evening, trying to do as much as they can in their own home because that's the way they want it and that's what's best for them economically. It really is necessary to sit down and consciously have a moment where you're enjoying that food, to value that food. It, to, to, to keep sane, to create a balance in that busy food world, it's necessary to have moments where you slow down and you're not just producing, you're However, actually enjoying. having said all that, we're not going to recommend to you that you just live on sorghum and liver. We are going to talk about chocolate and beer yeah. and coffee. Completely. Yeah. So um, what foods feel to you like they are luxuries in our kitchen and routine coffee coffee mm. coffee and the thing is just the, coffee <laughs> no, it's the first one that comes to mind yeah. and you know what the ridiculous thing about it is that i mean there's not a heck of a lot of evidence of it actually being an ancestral food beyond like i think it's 1500 ad or something is the first mm. actual like solid evidence of it but there are there's sort of um kind of written evidence that it may have been existed and been cultivated before that so who knows i mean history in africa doesn't quite work the same way that it works in europe mm. you know for a whole host of reasons that would be on the scope of this podcast so um what I, so you want so, me to go through yeah, and list well, them not, not going to what depth, ones come probably. to mind okay well i mean definitely the rye bread that i have mm. you see this is the thing i have that coffee nearly every day um if i have a day off it honestly it's probably because i had a coffee out no not always though um and okay so rye bread which mm -hmm. i also have almost every day in reality um that feels like a luxury but then there i mean there are other things like the pizza and the beer definitely mm -hmm. feel like luxuries and they're far more sporadic you know mm -hmm. and, and chocolate we have in small quantities and not with any real consistency mm -hmm. for a number of reasons and that that also feels like a luxury. You said the boza earlier on. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Some of some of these foods, they they don't 
sort of they don't spring to mind to me as luxuries in themselves but when they hit the right context they're amazing i mean like boza is just when i'm just a little bit hungry i'm I'm just i'm flagging and i'm i'm losing it like some, some afternoons if i've had a particularly long day and maybe i've been out late the night before and i, I just i need something to keep me moving and it, it really it hydrates you at the same time as giving you a bit of sustenance that's a, a little bit more lasting than a piece of fruit it just it fills an amazing gap and it can feel so satisfying because your your senses and your body are just they're all getting exactly what they need um but at the same time i mean like today it was particularly hot outside it's, it's just getting hotter and hotter it's ridiculous and um I, I find that some rykvass is much more hydrating than water. I don't want any actual food in my stomach, but I want something with just a little bit of substance to it so that it doesn't just go straight through me. It actually hydrates me. And, and rykvass is a really great version of that. We've got, we got loads of these around at the moment because mm. Alison's experimenting with beer starters. So we've just got a plethora of these drinks, which feels, again, feels really luxurious. Like a luxury. Yeah. So, yeah. I we're, could go on. <laughs> we're going to talk specifically for the rest of the podcast about coffee, chocolate and beer. Because for both of us, those three things feel like luxuries and yet sometimes we engage with them every day. And I, I wanted to just have a little caveat before we, before we dive into those, which is guilt and kind of pleasure and guilt and luxury. And I remember reading in uh, Marcus Patchett, who is the chocolate um, expert that we interviewed in our chocolate episode, which is way back in, uh, keep scrolling and you'll find the chocolate episode. And he talked about how scientists have shown that if you eat chocolate whilst feeling guilty about it, you block the positive... Um, he calls it fairy dust, like the little compounds <laughs> in it, that do good for your mental state and your body. <clears throat> so literally, the way that you feel about what you're eating when you eat it has physical and chemical repercussions in your body. And it feels important to me to state that, you know, we shouldn't feel guilty when we're having a luxury when we're giving ourselves something that brings us pleasure or supports us. And that's been quite a long journey for me because, you know, I spent my childhood overweight and overindulging in things like chocolate, like sugary things, like cakes, like biscuits that gave me pleasure eating them, but also did bad things for my body. And it's only, you know, I've been on a, a long journey to trust myself again, give my body the healing and nutrients it needs, changing my diet, losing that weight, swapping everything basically to, to be at the point now where I can indulge in these luxuries and I trust myself. And, but yet there's still that bit in the back of my head that was ingrained from 20 years ago that feels like, oh, I, I shouldn't be eating this. And, and I think that's a, a conversation that each of us personally needs to bring forward if it is there to the front of our consciousness and hold it there as we engage. How do you feel, Rob, about drinking coffee with that kind of context that I've just said? Well, when I listen to what you just said, I think when when you were a kid eating kilogram chocolate bars, mm. 
you were right to feel guilty. You were harming yourself. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's just, <laughs> and that, that habit of feeling guilty kind of grew up for a reason. Like everybody around you kind of stuffed themselves with this, that and whatever, and maybe not quite as much as you, but that, and it had maybe a different effect on them and they became less addicted. But really there's, there's quite a strong habit in the world at large. You know, it wasn't just the people you grew mm. up around to to behave like this and whereas for so but something somehow in your body knew that that was wrong and so that that guilt and that oh I mustn't do that so I, I mustn't do that and also obviously not wanting the obvious result of becoming overweight I mean there were plenty of other results that could have occurred mm. um that that's a serious motivating factor to feel guilty about it and that's fine the problem is what happens then when you change your diet i mean over a period of many years we've tried all sorts of other diets that were perhaps not as clever um this this one's the best one we've got so far i'm pretty <laughs> confident of that at this point that guilt reflex is bordering on useless i mean it really like it's just counterproductive and i mean in in that context it's just it's just breaking a habit pattern. Now, I mean, for me, okay, so I tried to change the way that my health was in my 20s and I identified a number of factors, a lot of them being sort of um, alignment and how my body was interacting with the world. And one of them, after a few years, I realized food was like a massive, massive factor for me. So at that point, I started the guilt thing and I started thinking, okay, well, everything I eat has just got to be perfect. And of course, what it took me some years to realize is that my notion of perfect back then was nonsense, mm. as in it was kind of derived from the food triangle that we all know and love. And <laughs> or, or no, so, and not love. You know, well, the thing is, like, even if you accepted that it was a, it was like appropriate statistically, um, which I'm not entirely certain about. The, you know, knowing how much individuals vary make, makes it just by definition useless but anyway so um it was based on that and so I was just applying that with gusto and feeling guilty for doing anything else and so I have I've had to sort of roll back on a, a kind of a attitude of narcissism I, I can't think of another way of putting it like oh I eat the best things and everybody else just eats rubbish and I I don't even care what you know the truth of that situation is. All all I know that every, is that every day I'm conscious about the things that I eat, where they come from, how we prepare them, and how I and and also the appropriateness of the time that I give them to myself and the quantity that I give them to myself and the state of mind that I'm in. So coming back to coffee, that was the original question. Mm. The truth of the matter is is that I've been weeks without coffee since I started drinking coffee again and the, I, I just I feel the way I did before I started drinking coffee a few years ago which is just a bit kind of down and miserable basically and it's you know it's long past the kind of the uh, all of the symptoms have gone of withdrawal from it it's just I'm not really a very happy person without it in comparison it makes me happier and I'm fine with that you know is if I don't notice any adverse effects especially over years i have noticed adverse effects if i try to have it say three four times a week 
because what happens then is I get withdrawal symptoms on the other days. So I'm I'm better off maybe having one day off a week or just stopping for a week here or there just to sort of reset myself and also not using it. So for example, if I'm quite tired like I am today because I was out um, playing at a bar last night and so I've had about three hours sleep, I had a coffee in the morning and I, you know, I'll be fine. I'll, I'll start getting tired in the afternoon. I'll genuinely start getting tired. If I have another coffee, then I will feel terrible for the rest of the week. Whereas if I don't, I'll feel terrible for the rest of the day, but I'll recover. And I think maybe that in that for me is the crux of the matter with mm. luxuries. This is what I've been sort of meandering around to get mm. to that a luxury is there because it is appropriate at the time and you you have reasons for it both in your senses and in your body that you think it's a reasonable thing to do and you enjoy it the moment you start using it mm. for an effect that is gonna harm you in the future whether that be the near future or the long future to the best of your knowledge that's the moment you're going to quite rightly start to feel guilty. And that guilt is no longer a habit pattern. That guilt is actually a reaction with you on your mind, which is perfectly rational. It's like the difference between using it as a crux, you know, as, a cr as something to, to lean on, a crutch rather. You know, the way that coffee, the coffee you're drinking is not like the coffee that you would buy freeze-dried in a supermarket. That's the true. chocolate that we eat is not like the chocolate that you find on the shelf in most supermarkets. The beer that we're drinking is not like the beer that you will see in the mass market. These um, products very consciously created have luxuries. been commoditized. They have been marketed at the masses. They've been industrialized. And the masses have been um, taught to become addicted to them because it keeps them going in the work machine, coffee keeps them going and beer keeps them quiet. You know, it's all the kind of things that keeps the populace turning the wheels of how our capitalist society works. You're starting to sound like Andrea to me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and from, a, from a food perspective, I shall step off my <laughs> soapbox, they're not the same foods at all. And so, you know, what you're saying about I, if I drink coffee purposely because I know I'm really tired and I'm using it to prop myself up, that's something that's not appropriate. That's the word you've used a lot, appropriate. And I think, you know, the coffee that you see on the supermarket shelf is mostly used by people to prop themselves up. Um, whereas when you engage with your food like, the people who are in this community do you you value it differently and you value your body differently and so the lu the luxury becomes a different it's just a it, it's a different being it's a different it's a different food I, I think by the time you've put the amount of energy that uh, probably a lot of your listeners do and and we certainly do into mm. preparing this food and sourcing this food it's not going to do you any damage in itself it will have its time and place where it's an appropriate enhancement both to your health and to your senses um whereas i think they're so honestly like almost anything you buy in a supermarket unless it's basically just fruit and veg 
is almost certainly going to be in itself a bit damaging really mm. that, that's the way i see it and it's, it's really sad but um okay let's, that's the conclusion let's I've come go to. back to coffee would you like more support to help you eat cook and live ancestrally if so come and check out our community at patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast We've got so many goodies over there that will help guide, inspire and support you in this journey we're taking together. There's our exclusive podcast where Andrea and I talk more intimately about what's happening in our kitchens and lives. There are so many after show bonuses, downloads, extra audios and resources. We have a forum where you can ask and answer questions and we even host a monthly chat where we get together and talk all the ancestral kitchen things. We love cooking and eating this way and this community and library of resources is what we would have wanted when we started out. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast to get started. Because we've never really talked about your process with coffee on the podcast at all. So can you explain your sourcing, what you source, how you process it, how you drink it, just the whole kind of thing. Okay, so I'm doing something that I've not seen anybody else do. Um, And I'm not sure whether it's the best thing to do. And I will continue sort of experimenting with it. But basically, I mean, my okay, so my sourcing of coffee, I try to buy organic fair trade beans. um, And I buy them green as in raw they that basically means they've been dried out in the sun for some weeks and sort of raked over i don't know the details of it any fermented. Better than that. they're fermented aren't they yeah i mean well well there's fermentation involved in the yeah process i think of fer- fermentation does actually happen in that mm. process but they they also they dry out mm. more to the point and then they sort of often They'll de-hull them. The hulls will just come off, basically. Sometimes they'll polish them so they come up looking all shiny. Sometimes you'll have lots of little bits in there. don't really matter, to be honest. It doesn't make a lot of difference to the coffee, I don't think. Um, at that point, they get shipped to me. And, I mean, the nice thing about that is they stay a lot fresher like that. When they're still green, they'll last you a year, like, honestly, in, like, sealed bags. There's really no problem. Um... And and that means there's less likelihood of sort of mould growing on them and things like that. They really do stay fresh. And like I say, they're organic. Um, the other thing is, okay, so I roast them myself. And I, I roast in a... I know, I mean, Alison complains the room gets a bit smoky after about an hour. But, we have the window. <laughs> but honestly, like, the, there's very, very little smoke comes off my roasting process. And I do what apparently historically people did up until the advent, invention of sort of cast iron tumblers. I think that maybe came in in the 18th century or something. Maybe somebody can look that one up for me. But it's basically you have something like a cast iron pan or spoon or whatever, and you, and you just you put that over a heat source and you stir them around. I mean, I, I use a cast iron pan on a hob and I've got a like a cake whisk, basically, that mm-hmm. I bubble them around with. And that means that they heat up. Where my and you get a nice sort of toasty flavour from the pan. Where my process differs from others is that mostly people heat their beans to a temperature where they crack. And what you hear, you hear a sort of a kind of pop noise. 
um, and you certainly get a first crack. Some people do it for a second time. I have I've just sort of developed a process where I I don't cause that crack, and I I literally just I leave them there roasting and stirring them around for about an hour. So you're keeping the temperature lower. Than, yeah, I mean I'm keeping the temperature really processes. quite low. And they just, they taste nicely and I get, they toast nicely and I get a drink out of it in the end. There's, there's a couple of key differences I've seen. First of all, the beans don't dehydrate in the way that they do if, say, you put them in the oven. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I think essentially what you could do, I do have a higher temperature at the beginning, but I think probably if you wanted a coffee more like the ones that you get in the shop, you could put the temperature up still a little bit higher and the beans would probably crack. Then the thing is to get a low acidity coffee, you go to a lower temperature and you just keep that going for quite some time and you can experiment with the length of time. There's articles abundant online for how to do that. But as I say, I found it quite nice doing it the way that I'm doing it. They're not dehydrated at the end, so they're not quite as crumbly as you would find from shop-bought coffee. I find, I mean, basically what happens, right, the, the more you roast them, the more you dehydrate them, the, more, the higher the temperature is, the lighter the beans get. I mean, it just takes out their moisture content. And I suspect what happens then is the same amount of caffeine is left in that bean. So effectively what you've got is you've got more caffeine, caffeine per weight if you roast because them. Because they're lighter. Yeah, yeah okay, like roast them at a higher temperature and for longer. And so effectively my coffee has less caffeine in it it's it's a low acidity coffee it's not as as bitter it's kind of a more of a kind of a brown roast uh, a medium kind of brown roast rather than a really dark roast and i really like the taste of it i really enjoy it so most of the coffee that um we come across in italy is very very dark roast black it looks yeah. black yeah talk about how that differs from coffee that you've seen in england well okay yeah i mean italy seems to have this culture of just absolutely dark dark coffee and i think in theory maybe maybe there's nothing wrong with that as i say i mean i think if your initial temperature is a bit higher and but you do a, a long slow roast you can do a dark coffee that's not actually burnt it's just a dark roast and there's there's a cafe i particularly like in florence that i it seems to me does that from the flavor of it most coffee that i find in most of the cafes here is just I, I don't know what temperature they put it at but it just seems just burnt to me there's no other way to describe it and in the UK it's on a sort of a continuum I would say they tend to do more coffee that's more like what I drink it's it's less um it, certainly less roasted however I suspect not necessarily less burnt I think they're, they're just as lazy about roasting the stuff it's just that they do it the fashion is to do it to a more kind of medium brown kind of color rather than really really dark so what does the darkness give that coffee that your one is lacking or missing sometimes i fancy something a little bit more bitter and i go to a cafe so the darkness brings out bitterness sometimes i mean and it certainly as i say i think it means by definition more caffeine that's yeah, my suspicion okay. So you do yours your way because... It's gentler you... on my body, as simple as oh, that. If okay. I had one of those darker, more caffeinated coffees every day, I would struggle. I mean, I, mean, I have done that. And, and what I about flavour? Um, probably if I had to choose one, I'd choose mine. I mean, maybe, maybe it's like toothpaste, you know, you get used to what you got and then you don't want anything else. But I, if I had to choose one, I'd choose mine. 
and and I like that once every week or two I'll go to a cafe and I'll have something dark because I like them too. How often do you um, roast your beans? Um, probably every like three weeks or so, two or three weeks. And I how suppose. much do you do in one go? Um, enough to do. 12 grams a day, I suppose. Okay, so that's how I'm much you have in a coffee, yeah, 12 grams. Yeah, so I, I have a little bit more than the 9-gram shot. Um, how much water do you put in those 12 grams? <laughs> um, God, I don't know. Um, just trying to think. You probably, have a small coffee, don't you? You're not yeah, having I mean, maybe, like a long Americano. Yeah, by American standards, probably small. Like by Italian standards, they think Big. I'm ridiculous because yeah. I put too much water in. So I'm mean, probably like 300 milliliters or something like that. So I, mean, yeah, the, I don't know what that the is Italian in American coffee measurements. Is, so I'm sorry. Is, what the stereotype is it's like literally a teaspoon of water yeah. served standing yeah, up yeah. you just walk into the into the cafe you go to the bar you order your coffee it's a teaspoonful you down it you yeah, talk quick to conversation the, you with the guy at the, the bar barista, <laughs> walk out. and then you walk out again <laughs> yeah. and you do that several times a day um so rob is looked at very strangely when he asks for water in his coffee cafe filtrato mm. yeah so what effects do you notice from that coffee in your body? You've already said it makes you feel happier. That's kind of twee, but yeah, what, I mean, what else for me, honestly, like I think, I mean, not not that I have the the most stable of psychological histories, but I'm I'm not like bipolar or anything. But it feels to me like an antidepressive. I mean, I think obviously the initial withdrawal symptoms of coffee are feeling depressed. That's literally what happens, but. I think I was just, I, I'm just generally happier for having it. And, it, and it's, a, it's a drug, like literally it's a hedonic response kind of thing going on. But it's, it's a proper drug as far as I'm and concerned. And you feel okay putting a drug into your body to make yourself happier every day? I, I had inner debates about this when I started drinking it again after having not touched it for about 15 years. And um, it was weird because I had a, a client who was into vaping and it, it was very much in, in my mind that these people were doing vaping. Oh, they're not damaging their lungs. They're just like doting themselves with nicotine, basically. I wonder, is that a good idea? Is that, oh, I don't know. Maybe someone else can tell me there are other health problems or benefits with that. But I did, I, I felt like whatever it is that, you know, that plant, that coffee bean has become successful because of the, effect that it has on the humans who cultivate it and prepare it and drink it like the the reason that exists all over the world is because of what it does for us now probably uh, my my logic is that these things when prepared carefully and used responsibly they don't necessarily do you any harm because the plant doesn't want to kill you you know it wants you there to keep on harvesting coffee coffee beans and raking them in the sun and roasting them you know it, basically that plant if it killed us all off it would or even really shortened our lives it would be shortening its own life it's like a symbiotic relationship so provided we do it consciously and with care and appropriately we're we're onto a good thing i think hmm. okay um what happens when you go and have a dark roast coffee out? What, what feels different in your body? Um, well, I would classify that into two, um, two kind of strands of what happens, basically. Like one of them is, is the average kind of cafe or whatever where they just, like, it's, they've got little capsules of coffee and they just 
anyone who says Italians do good coffee, I just, oh, I don't know. Some of them do, but the, the style isn't usually my preference. And most of the cafes are just awful, I think, really. It's just basically the same as the UK, just a different style. Um, and that coffee makes me feel quite giddy and ill and <laughs> um, keeps me awake for an awful long time. And I, genuinely, I don't really like the taste that much either. But I think a lot of that is just the style, really. But there are coffee, cafes that do genuinely good coffee, you know, the artisanal, uh, artigianale, something like that. Um, that's a completely different affair, probably because they do a, a long, low acidity roast. Um, and that doesn't, it doesn't make me feel ill in the slightest. I mean, it, it's, it's fine like that, but it is, there's definitely more caffeine in it. You know, it gives mm -hmm. me a bigger kick than what I have at home. And I generally get a shorter drink out of it, no matter what I do, because they just, they won't put that amount of water in it. Um, so it's, it's not something I can do every day. It's, it's like having like a sort of, you know, one coffee feels like having about two of mine. Mm, okay. Um, and I don't drink two coffees a day as a rule. Well, that's really the bottom line. So yeah, we didn't, we haven't actually said that. You have one coffee a day, generally. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes none, sometimes two. I mean, that's really. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So if someone wanted to have a go themselves, then they've got to source some green beans from somewhere, and they're becoming more widely available than they were a couple of years ago. We have noticed when we've been looking for. Yeah, them. yeah. I mean, you can usually get them on Amazon and eBay and things like that, yeah. and you can get them direct from growers yeah. as well. There's one that I've used on occasion. And then. They can be roasted, like you said, in a cast iron pan, as long as it's been agitated and play around with the, the heat. Started at a higher heat, is what yeah. you said, and then also, bring it down to a lower heat, and it takes about an hour. Yeah, I mean, the way I'm doing it takes about an hour. Probably most people wouldn't be doing more than about 30 minutes, really. And I think the, I mean, you can oven them as well for either a portion of that time or all of that time. And what you will find is they dehydrate more in the mm -hmm. oven. And that will make them easier to grind. And probably in the end, you'll get something more like the shop-bought coffee that you've got. But I, I found, I felt like I was burning them and didn't like it okay. as much. I like the toasty flavor from the pan. Okay, let's talk about something that's <laughs> kind of similar in a way, chocolate. So um, the first thing I've written down in my notes is where did this start? When did we start making chocolate from raw beans at home? Um... I don't remember. It's Marcus again, isn't it? It's Marcus's yeah, so, fault. Thank you. Um, Thank I you, started learning about chocolate and then I bought Marcus Patchett's absolute tome, The Secret Life of Chocolate, which is like 800 pages of tiny print about chocolate. It's history, traditions, mythology, chemistry, everything you could possibly imagine to do with chocolate. And found out that really chocolate is not, was not initially and for most of history, eaten, consumed in the way that we consume it. It was drunk and it was prized, it was currency, it was used in ceremonies, ceremonial kind of chocolate. And I just got really curious. <clears throat> I noticed that most people who make chocolate themselves from the bean, from the raw bean, have very expensive equipment. You can buy a melangeur, which will cost you upwards of $1,500 to make your chocolate smooth, smooth, smooth. And they have big roasting machines, just like the coffee. You know, there's lots of parallels between chocolate and coffee. And I just decided I wanted to make my own chocolate at home. So 
I think the reasons to make it at home, now, I mean, I do this regularly. Not all the chocolate I eat is made at home because it's a, it's an effort. It really is. It's an involved process. But we much prefer the chocolate that I make at home to any other chocolate. Um, Rob's probably good at it riffing about what is different between <laughs> the chocolate that I make at home using equipment that we've got in our kitchen from the bean to chocolate you buy in the shop. Oh, it just tastes better. <laughs> what do you on. want? I, I, you, you've um, gone on about it like flowery, I, loads of it's times. Just that we, we've bought all sorts of expensive yeah. chocolate from various different places, you know, either the most ethical or the so-called tastiest <laughs> and, the, and the, you know, varying success from both really. But they, uh, just the, this stuff is just the best. It really is. I, I don't, it's, it's to do with it being fresh. Yeah. I think it's as simple as that. And even though you're not kind of necessarily doing the process as perfectly as perhaps the best um, chocolatier could achieve, mm. The, mm. the fact that it comes straight out of your kitchen and that those beans have just been roasted and they've just been shelled and they've just been ground. It's, oh my God, it's just amazing. It really is. So the reasons why you might want to consider making chocolate as one of your luxuries at home is because, you, first of all, you can control the sweetness. So when I started making chocolate, I was putting no sugar in it at all. I was making 100% cacao chocolate. You can control the origin. You know, so you can choose where your beans are coming from. I have opted for a particular bean from a farm in Nicaragua which is a type, a particular type of cacao bean, which has less caffeine in. I'm caffeine sensitive, hence I didn't get involved in the discussion <laughs> about coffee <laughs> that we just had, because I don't drink coffee. Um, but there are the various different types of caffeine. Um, the, the one that's used, the one that has the most caffeine of chocolate, sorry, the one that has the most caffeine is called Criollo. There's also um, Forestero or Forestero and another type as well. I've found a particular type of bean which has nice flavour and yet has lower caffeine than Criollo beans, which is what you can buy most if you go looking for raw beans. And I know they're coming from a farm in Nicaragua and I buy them in bulk and I'm happy with their practices. Um, why make your own chocolate? Well, because you can. It's joyful. It's such a creative act. It tastes amazing, like Rob said. To see that product go from just a, a bean with a shell on that's raw to actual chocolate is, is frankly magical. Um, so just to explain my process, like Rob did with his chocolate, I buy the beans in bulk from an importer who is in Amsterdam. They also have um, a, a premise or a premises, sorry, in um, America so that you can buy them there too and it took me a while to find a supplier that didn't sell 70 kilogram bags because I didn't want to buy one kilogram but I'm not someone who's making chocolate all the time in factory style conditions so I didn't want 70 kilograms of cacao beans in our house you wouldn't get 70 no I don't kilograms. think you would no we'd lose a room to 70 <laughs> yeah. kilograms of cacao yeah. beans so I order three kilograms at a time and I roast them in batches so I'll take some of them out and put the rest of them and they keep just like the coffee the green coffee beans they keep for a very long time I'll check the beans over to make sure 
there's no damaged ones and then I roast mine I have done it in the pan but I have settled to doing it in the oven and I've got kind of a temperature staging that I do for that and then the house smells wonderful because you you smell at the beginning you smell the acidity coming out just like with coffee roasting changes the flavor profile makes them more kind of toasty but also lowers the acidity so to start with you smell that acidity coming out and then you start to smell the kind of cacao flavors and coming out into your um, into your kitchen it's wonderful when they have finished roasting i let them cool down and we generally winnow them by hand so winnowing means taking the shell off you can do that with um, a kind of a mallet and then use a hair dryer which i have done in the past but we do them all by hand now, so it means picking every bean up and kind of putting it between your forefinger and your thumb, taking the shell off. The reason that we do them by hand is because I use those shells. So when the bean comes out, I'm using the bean for chocolate, but I'm using the shells to make cacao husk tea, which is my favourite tea. I mean, hands down. It's the clincher for you, really, isn't yeah. it? It's a big part of the reason you do it, I think. It like, is why amazing. Do you chocolate? Cacao well, husk tea. tea. If you've ever tried a packeted chocolate tea you've probably thought mm, don't really taste much chocolate bit rubbish oh my gosh do this process get some cacao husks put them in boiling water boil them for like 15 boil them and then turn them down leave them for 15 minutes strain them and drink the water it tastes amazing absolutely amazing so that's why we take the shells off by hand and then we've got the nibs left which we will store in glass jars. And then when I want to make chocolate, I will grind those up and mix them with cacao butter and coconut oil and often vanilla, a little bit of sugar if I want to put sugar in it. And then sometimes Gable plays around with it and puts things like you know orange peel or um, other flavourings, some nuts in them. And you have a course on your website that demonstrates you doing it, do you Exactly. Not? Well, the whole point is I found a way to do it without using any special equipment. So I didn't spend $1,500 on a, on a chocolate grinder. I'm doing it with a high-impact high coffee grinder, basically, or you could use a Vitamix. And I did do a course on it last year where I walked through the entire process as well as talking a lot about chocolate. And several people came and did that course which was on Zoom. And then the Zoom videos I uploaded to my site and they're very affordable and several people now have taken them since then and they're making chocolate in their own homes. So you don't need any equipment to, you know, special equipment to follow this process. Basically, you probably want to buy some chocolate moulds, but you can even just pour the chocolate at the end onto parchment paper and it, it works just fine. So it is just it's a wonderful process it will connect you with your chocolate in a way that you just haven't ever been before if you've not um, made chocolate it will give you different taste sensations that will help you understand chocolate more it will bring so much beautiful fresh cacao bean into your life and the shells um, you know so many of the polyphenols and compounds in cacao are susceptible to oxidization damage so the longer we leave chocolate the more likely it is that we're not getting so many goodies from it and you know having read Marcus's book chocolate is a powerhouse of amazing compounds that can do wonders to our health and I just I absolutely love it it's just it's like night and day different from 
chocolate that you buy in the shop. It is sort of stone ground because because I don't have that expensive equipment. It comes out more textured than a standard bar of chocolate that you'd buy. And it feels like it feels like an incredible luxury, much more of a luxury than eating from a chocolate bar. So I would eat less of those than I would eat a bar of chocolate because I value that more and everything that we've talked about. Um, but also I feel different when I eat them because they're something I've made and they, they're, they're beautiful, you know, they're absolutely beautiful. And I love the way you get more generous with that homemade chocolate as you start to run out of cacao shells and you're like, oh, I want to roast some more <laughs> so some I can have tea. more cacao, cacao tea. <laughs> yeah so I'll put a link to the course in the show notes um, but if you're if you've thought about it at all I'd say do it because you'll you'll yeah you'll completely change your relationship with chocolate and you'll love the process along the way. Did I cover everything on chocolate or is there anything I that I missed? So. Yeah. yeah, you think so? Okay. Yeah. So let's move to the last um, luxury, everyday luxury that we're going to cover, which I think both of us have got equal input, possibly <laughs> me slightly more, um, which is beer. And just like coffee and chocolate, the beer that we eat, drink um, nowadays is completely different to how beer's origins were. And... Again, I was thinking, where did it start with beer? Where did it start with beer? So I was making suens as my fermented oat drink first. That was kind of the first fermented grain drink that I really got into. After that, I tried to find a fermented grain drink that was a bit more fun for Gabriel. And that led me to Boza, because at that time we were taking lectins out of Gabriel's diet and millet is lectin-free. So I, make the, I made the Boza then. Um, having found out about it being an ancestral drink in Turkey and the Balkans and piecing together how I could possibly bring that into my own kitchen in a way that worked for all of us. And we have the, the beautiful Boza, which is probiotic and dairy-free, lectin-free, gluten-free. And that just kind of, those two things made me think, gosh, there's this whole world of grain ferments. And I got another copy of Sandal Katz's Wild Fermentation, and in the back of that, there is a recipe for Egyptian booza, which is spelt differently from boza. It's B-O-U-Z-A. And I looked at it and thought, I want to do that. But it was quite involved. So I had to talk to Rob and say, well, what do you think? I think you drink this. What do you think of this? And I gave that a go. And that's really where that started. You can go back and listen to the episode on beer, which was probably about six months ago to hear about that more in detail. From that initial Egyptian beer, which was made with sourdough starter, we have evolved into quite a different process, still malting the grains ourselves and with a home cultured starter. I have since read and listened to pages and pages and books and hours and hours and hours and hours of, of podcasts about beer's history mostly in the UK and we're making beer now not as often as coffee and chocolate probably well we just can't do labor because intensive it's, it's <laughs> more labor intensive um, but and also I, I mean mm. to put it bluntly although 
it's a very nice mood that it puts me in. Mm. It reduces my capacity to work. <laughs> yeah. like I can't do anything particularly useful yeah. after I've had a beer. Yeah, so I wouldn't drink it every day. Yeah. You have coffee every day. I have chocolate virtually yeah. every day. But the beer, we make a batch and it's generally about three litres. Well, we time it. it for a long weekend, three don't quarts. we? So. Yeah, and we make it for a long weekend. Yeah. And we drink it at lunchtime, or yeah. I do, definitely, because I want those effects to have worn off before I sleep and I do not drink a lot I mean so you you see beers in bottles which are 330 millilitres or a pint of beer in England I'm not drinking anywhere near as much yeah, as that and it's really not very alcoholic either is and it? it's not very alcoholic yeah. so it's not like I'm going around drinking beer or uh, ale all the time um, we're having it kind of in in batches maybe once a month I think ideally we'd like it once a month wouldn't we sometimes we don't get that even far. that's probably too much to be honest it's, mm. it's hard isn't it um, um it also doesn't really do very well in hot temperatures, no. does it? and so, we start to struggle yeah, when yeah. we get to about May, June, July, yeah. August, September in Italy because we don't have a cooling environment. We have a warming environment for breads in the winter, but not a cooling environment yet. So the process is different to standard beer in that it's a home yeast rather than a commercial yeast. This drink has no hops in it, so actually it is an ale um, rather than a beer. Beer has generally become known as the drink with, with drink with hops, whereas ale was pre-hops. It has no chemicals. The malt is fresh because we've malted it, and, and everything is done at home. I feel like, I mean, there, there's basically no way I drink a standard beer. I don't really drink alcohol out of the I house. Had, I had at one all. a few weeks ago and I felt yeah. like I'd been hit by a bus. This is the difference. <laughs> Our, when we were drinking, it's lower alcohol. There's less. Um, sorry, what was I going to say? It's, it's lower alcohol and I'm drinking less of it. That's what I was going to say. But even with those things, it feels like a completely different drink to a beer that you would buy from a supermarket. And, I mean, you've had more experience of drinking beer recently. So how does well, it feel I, differently in your body? I think the the thing about alcohol is that anyone who's given up alcohol for a long period of time knows that the first drink you have after not having drank it for a long time gets you drunk extremely quickly and then makes you feel absolutely terrible. Mm. And what happens, you need to have, if you have small amounts of it regularly, probably don't do yourself a whole lot of harm, but also, you you, you know, you actually don't feel too bad after you drink it. The interesting thing about the stuff that we're making at home is that I seem to have, be able to have a good, satisfying, long drink. I mean, it's it's kind of a bit cloudier than yeah. normal beer, so uh, you don't tend to drink so much of it anyway. So I, I probably barely, I don't even drink half a pint, I would say. Mm. But I can drink, nevertheless, sort of a quarter to a third of a pint easily and not have any Ill effects, Ill effects at all. And do that, I don't know, like we said, once every month, or once mm. every six weeks. And it doesn't seem to have any effect on me. And I, I foolishly thought somebody showed me a um, what looked like a reasonably nicely put together beer at a party a little while ago. It was only like a little bottle, like 330 milliliters or something. And oh, my gosh, I felt dreadful after. It was like I hadn't been drinking. Mm. and yet but this beer that we make at home I mean it does it does get me drunk in the quantities mm. that I'm having it because I'm not drinking often 
it has certainly has a warming tipsy effect. We have a kind of the semi theory that the home cultured yeasts that we're using have other mm, organisms in them which have different effects to a yeast that has just been bought and cultured in a lab and and bought. And that that Um, conclusion is. completely unsupported by scientific evidence (laughs) basically by one attempt using commercial yeast where we had the beer and it tasted really nice and it had a similar amount of alcohol in it but we felt like we were going to die afterwards it was really (laughs) really quite a hangover kicked in for both of us we were absolutely knocked out you know not just with the way it tastes and that i think i feel extremely proud of, of what we're doing you know just like with the coffee and the chocolate it's bringing us closer to the thing that we're drinking and also it's bringing us closer to our food in general you know the sources um, and it's it's reminding me it's it's kind of remembered my body literally of the ways that beer was you know because beer was never a commercial yeast. Beer was never sold in supermarkets. Beer was a community event. Beer was for ceremonies. Beer was special. And it feels like that's the way beer is for us now. And that feels really, really beautiful and right. And stepping outside of the industrialised um, world of beer and saying, no, we're making this in our home and is different and we love it it that's a really it makes me feel whole you know that makes me feel beautiful and whole and it's kinder to our bodies Mm. than the industrialized cousin because of the effort that we put into it and it's also more surprising Every batch is different. Mm. It's really, the truth is, it's the same with the chocolates, it's the same with the Mm. coffee, it's the Mm. same with the beer. Every time we make them, they're just a little bit different because why bother making it exactly the same every time? And, you know, I guess if you were going to sell it, that's what you'd do, but we don't. We make it for our family Mm. the way, honestly, I think most food probably has always been made. And the the beauty of that is that you don't have to nail down every single detail completely. And so it does come out different every time. And you just, you you get a surprise in every mouthful. You really do. And like that, that's worth more than any hit that's exactly the same as the hit I got last time when I bought it out of the packet, you know. And um, I, I will get round at some point to creating some sort of process that other people can follow for this. And we're working, um, as Rob said, there's a lot of Rykovas around at the moment because we're experimenting with starters for the beer. I'm trying to find a way to reliably, people who would like to make beer at home, for them to reliably have a cultured, home cultured starter that they can use in their own beer. And that's taking quite a lot of experimentation because we only make beer like once a month. It's taking some time. Um, but yeah, so those are our three kind of everyday luxuries, special things in in our in our life: the um, coffee, the chocolate, and the beer. There's one other question that I've noted down here, Rob, that that I wanted to ask you. There's two actually. How do you feel about importing stuff, those beans for the coffee and the chocolate? How do you feel about that? Oh, terrible. Like the narcissist in me just cringes. Mm. I, I, can't. I mean, 
I think not very good. Like honestly, mm. I think I ideally, I ideally would make the best of our own surroundings, um, which we do. And which which we do a lot of the time. Of and the, the time. the beauty and the wonder that we get from that i think the the one thing that i would say about that is first of all they're just you know you can't grow coffee here in italy i know they call it italian coffee but it's not you know um and so uh, i think there is for certain things there is a case for importing them because they import easily you know and we're we're expats here you know i, I could if i'm going to be really like picky about it I would say, well, you English people, you shouldn't be living in Italy. You should have stayed where you are in your village. You know, I mean, you, you can just take these things to such an extreme. And it's, mm. I, I think maybe they need to be approached kind of intelligently because, I, you know, I know that a lot of these coffee growers, they're taking really good care of their land and they're trying to take care of the people who work there and the livelihoods of the people who are there. And, and by buying that, you're encouraging that. Obviously, that's not true for all coffee growers, but if you choose them carefully, that is yeah. true. So, it, I mean, on one level, it has a positive impact. I think there's a, I mean, there's a problem with coffee in that we can't possibly sustain the amount that we're producing. But I put the coffee that I'm making in a different context to that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know really. I mean, it, it, it could be worse. There, there are positives and negatives to what we're doing. Mm. And I just don't have the mental capacity to be like messing around with them, honestly. I, th I think at the end of the day, like, there's a lot of things that I don't import because I just think it's plain wrong. Mm. But the coffee makes me feel better. I'm glad to be giving money to the people who are selling it to me. It's not a big thing to stick on an aeroplane, you know. Does it come on an aeroplane, you know, because um, a lot of yeah, come by ship. I think the last lot I got must I have come on a donkey. Come, it took weeks and weeks, didn't it? I wonder, it might come by ship. Yeah, you know, there's a sometimes. wonderful um, sailing company that runs a, a really old-fashioned sail ship from the Caribbean to Europe, bringing in products like rum and chocolate. And I really want them to just bring in beans. But obviously the beans are a lot heavier. It's easier for them to bring in chocolate because the value has already been added. That's a good thing. You know, it's been value-added at the place where it came from so those communities have got the money and then you can buy that chocolate obviously it's more expensive but the people who run the sail ship who actually man it they love sailing you know so it's it's a win-win they've got this beautiful ship that they're maintaining and they're doing something they love and they're bringing in product which is taking revenue to the um to the actual producers which is great last question then these things take time and generate a lot of washing up and as chief slash only wash it upper in the house i wonder how you feel about that i've never screamed on a podcast before <laughs> i'm holding it in um okay yeah i mean we could do we used to have a dishwasher didn't we in a, a flat that we moved into when we first arrived back here yeah, a few just, years okay, ago just that, load and that, it and unload it and get the things it, out it the was funny clean. actually because yeah what happened was alison and gabriel were more adapted to loading and unloading the dishwasher so i i loved it because i had less washing up to do but obviously they complained about it and now we don't have a dishwasher and for various reasons i do the lion's share of the washing up i i don't know i mean i i often listen to things while i wash up frankly like 
some of the work that I do, the state that I'm in after I've done it, I just need to calm down and do something manual. Is it? It's not. Mm. It's okay. not really a problem a lot of the time. Um, okay, that's good. Then I'll carry yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> Expect chocolate. Well, yeah, Expected. I do. I, this is the thing. I like the chocolate. It's also, you know, I I do most of the shelling the beans, frankly, yeah, because I'm quicker at it than everybody else. Yeah, and well, but that's true. I, I mean. It's fine. I get I get nice chocolate out of it sometimes, and it's it's a manual task, you know. The other thing with the both with the shelling the chocolate and with the um, roasting the coffee and with the washing up, you know, I, with the washing up I can't quite read, but the other two I can read while I'm doing it to other people yeah. or to myself, and all three of them I can have a phone call with someone, no problem, and it's it doesn't. Uh, that doesn't challenge my multitasking much because there, there's such manual, simple processes. Yeah. You can have a conversation. I think we need more of that in our lives, so, don't you? You know, we're yeah. all or sometimes I just want some quiet and I do something manual, and that, and that's fine. We're all on technology and communicating, and we can communicate. Like talking to Andrea, you know, across an ocean. Those manual tasks are so important. Yeah, we just need smash more your phone tasks. to pieces. Enjoy doing it. <laughs> actually mine i didn't smash mine to pieces what happened was alison dropped it that's yeah. why it's broken but even so mine's um, mine's indestructible my nokia 3310 <laughs> from 30 is, from 1980 something yeah. is indestructible i'll be using that when i'm like 80 like that, that that was from the last century that phone okay so i think we're done anything else you want to add thank you for letting me on here again i enjoy this yeah we enjoyed it too and andrea like i said you're an Andrea-proof guest. She she always... Thank you, Andrea. <laughs> she always likes what you have to say, so thank I you. I like what she has to say as well. I, I listen to so many of these podcasts because I mix them and yeah. I, I just, I, I don't listen to all of any episode, but I probably end up listening to about sort of a third to a half of every single one. Yeah, and, 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 and Rob did, Rob um, created and recorded the music for our theme tune and the music that goes underneath the adverts. Tell people where they can go and find your music if they're curious. Oh, that's kind. Um, yeah, robertmichaelk.com. Spell got... it out because Michael's yeah, kind of weird, okay, isn't so, it? Yeah, okay, um, so Robert, we know how to do that. Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-K-K-A-Y, that's easy, dot com. And yeah, I've got a new single coming out soon. It's in the final stages of my control-free career at the moment. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, well, um, hopefully we'll have you back sometime next year, probably. Thank you, I look forward to it. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.